Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. As the COVID-19 vaccine rollout continues across New England, some older residents feel left behind. We're seeing just a huge number of people get vaccinated who I think, you know, should frankly be way down the line. These are people who have nothing to do at all with COVID or with patient care. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. Residents and public health experts debate who should get the vaccine first. And a technology called ropeless fishing could help save endangered right whales from extinction. That's going to beep in a second. It's going to tell me how far away the unit is. 79 meters away. Plus, how Connecticut's highest court aims to diversify its juries. We are all entitled to a jury of our peers. And if we're not getting that, or even if there's a perception that we're not getting that, then we have a problem. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. On February 1st, 2020, the first COVID-19 case was confirmed here in New England. A University of Massachusetts Boston student was diagnosed with the virus. It wasn't until more than a month later that the true severity of the situation became clear. It was a global pandemic. We all know what happened after that. Now we're trying to beat this virus with a vaccine. And about a year after that first case was detected, nearly all New England states have opened up vaccination eligibility to seniors. Massachusetts started this month with people aged 75 and older, and residents over 65 will be eligible later this month. It's good news for older residents, but many wonder, what took the state so long? GBH Radio's Gabriela Emanuel reports. Carol Halberstadt is 82, and she's been locked in her apartment outside of Boston since the beginning of the pandemic. I become more and more despairing and lonely. Halberstadt has a long list of complex medical conditions. She's also going blind, and she says in urgent need of eye surgery. But to feel safe in the hospital, she needs a vaccine. The vaccine would change my life. It would give me a future. According to CDC data, Massachusetts is in the bottom half of states in per capita vaccinations. Halberstadt's been watching in frustration as seniors in many other states have started receiving the shots. And she says it's especially baffling to see in Massachusetts healthy 20-somethings who work from home getting vaccinated before seniors and before people who are sick. We're seeing just a huge number of people get vaccinated who I think you know, should frankly be way down the line. These are people who have nothing to do at all with COVID or with patient care. Michael Minna is at Harvard School of Public Health. A few things are happening here. First, the basics. The federal government gave states vaccines based on their total population, but they told states to prioritize health care workers. In Massachusetts, there are far more health care professionals in line to get the shot, in part because they make up a bigger chunk of the workforce here than in any other state. It effectively means that sort of the elderly and vulnerable people who might need the vaccine first will generally be pushed back. 
Second, the state and hospitals have decided to include all hospital employees in the first phase of vaccinations, not just those working with patients. And Minna says nobody has really explained why this is okay. And they have covered. They say, okay, the the government, the federal government, the vaccine prioritization list has said hospital employees go first. So they just go with that. A third issue is that some of those hospital employees have been flaky. The Dana-Farber Cancer Institute sent out a mass email saying, quote, We have had far too many researchers not show up for COVID-19 vaccinations over the past week. It says the result is vaccines may have been wasted. These issues have been compounded by technical glitches, communication missteps, and a later start in nursing home vaccinations compared to neighboring states. All of this has led 82-year-old Halberstadt to one conclusion. They're either totally incompetent or they don't care. But at a press conference, Governor Baker said there was a careful logic to the rollout. I get the fact that by choosing a number of very targeted communities and populations that we felt we should start with, that would create uh, a slower rollout and a slower ramp up than you would see where you just took Big groups by age and said, go. The chief medical officer at UMass Medical, Andrew Carson, says administrators who are working remotely were vaccinated as a precaution. The governor and the state of Massachusetts have said, please make sure you vaccinate those people too, because if the administrators uh, get ill, we won't be able to care for our patients because they are supporting all these critical services. He says, for example, members of UMass Medical's HR team have helped staff a field hospital. Carson added that with the vaccine on hand, they didn't want to delay getting it in people's arms as they waited for guidance from the state on who to inoculate next. It's that same guidance that so many seniors have been craving. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. At Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston, a harsh reality emerged early on in the chaos of COVID-19. One group of patients in particular was dying at higher rates than any other. The hospital set out to discover why. WBUR's Martha Biebinger has our story. It was March, just weeks into the pandemic. The Brigham's Emergency Command Center was scrambling to understand this new deadly coronavirus. It appeared to be killing more black and brown patients than whites, and for Latinos, there seemed to be an additional risk factor. We had a, an inkling that language was going to be an issue early on. This is Dr. Karthik Sivashankar. His job at the Brigham is to build equity into daily operations. So when Sivashankar saw language flagged as a problem on one patient safety report after another, he started analyzing those records. And that's where we started to really discover some deeper, previously invisible inequities. Inequities that were not just about race. There was no mortality difference when we just looked at Hispanic patients with COVID-19. But there was a mortality difference when we looked at Hispanic patients who were non-English speaking. That realization defined a problem for the Brigham and some possible solutions. First, the problem. It started outside the hospital in communities like East Boston, Chelsea, and Revere, where the coronavirus spread quickly among many native Spanish speakers living in close quarters with jobs they could not do from home. COVID patients from these communities surged into Boston hospitals, including Brigham and Women's. And we were frankly not fully prepared for that surge. We have really amazing interpreter services, but they were starting to get overwhelmed. Well, in the beginning, everything was new. We didn't know how 
to act. We were panicking. Ana Maria Rios Velez, a Spanish-language interpreter at the Brigham, remembers searching for words to translate this new disease and experience. When called to a COVID patient's room, interpreters were confused about whether they could go in and how close they could get to a patient. Soon, many were told to stay home and interpret over the phone. It was extremely difficult, extremely difficult. The patients were having breathing uh, issues. They were coughing. The voices were muffled. And Rios Velas couldn't look her patients in the eye to put them at ease and try to build a connection. It's not only the voice. Sometimes I need, I need to see the lips, the smiling. I want them to see the compassion in me. And with the mask, with the shields, with the gowns, it was very difficult. That's one problem. Now solutions. More interpreters and more iPads so COVID patients could see Rios Velas and her colleagues. The goal is that every patient who needs an interpreter will get one. The Brigham is close, but is not there yet. Sivashankar's analytics team uncovered other disparities. Lower-paid employees were getting COVID more often than nurses and doctors. Sivashankar says they held dozens of small group meetings with medical assistants, transport, security, and environmental services staff. We shared the data with them around the fact that they were testing positive at higher rates. We encouraged them to get testing and let them know that they would not lose their jobs and that we realize you're risking your life just like any other doctor or nurse is every single day you come to work. The hospital investigated reports of favoritism in the distribution of personal protective equipment. It started translating all coronavirus messages and sending them via text, which people on the move all day are more likely to read. And the hospital went out to where the problem started. It set up testing sites in some Boston neighborhoods with high coronavirus infection rates where many employees live and were getting infected. No one has to be scheduled. You don't need insurance. You just walk up and we can test you. Dr. Kristen Price looks across the parking lot at the Brookside Health Center in Jamaica Plain, where tents offered testing and other kinds of help during warmer months. This is where we ask them about food insecurity. We ask them about access to medications. We ask people if they're registered to vote, and if they have not yet voted and are eligible, we'll register them. Nancy Santiago is here to pick up a 10-pound bag of food for herself and her mother. I got some apples, potatoes, broccoli, pineapples, bananas. Santiago says the fruits and veggies are keeping her mom healthy and making it easier for Santiago to make ends meet. I had to leave my job because of daycare, and it's been pretty tough. But, you know, we got to keep staying strong, and hopefully this is over sooner than later. Santiago's groceries, the referrals for housing assistance, and help with voter registration, this aid is part of a growing conversation about the role hospitals will play outside their walls to curb health disparities rooted in racism. Again, Dr. Price. Poverty and uh, social determinants of health needs are not going away anytime soon. And so if there is a way to continue to serve the communities, I think that would be tremendous. The Brigham and its hospital network, Mass General Brigham, say there are a number of so-called community health projects in the works. But defining a return on investment may be difficult. Here's Dr. Sivashankar on whether native Spanish speakers are still dying at the highest rates from COVID.
it's never going to be as simple as, well, we just didn't give them enough iPads or translators, and that was the only problem. And now that we've given that, we've now shown that that mortality difference has gone away. No. Because these changes don't fix the poor housing, education, income stress, and racism that feed health disparities. But Sivashankar says the Brigham is improving the experience patients have inside the hospital, and he counts that as a success. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Martha Biebinger. You probably don't think of 2020 as the year of small business. But across Massachusetts, amid an economy devastated by the pandemic, the number of new LLCs formed in 2020 was nearly 10% higher than in 2019. WBUR Simone Rios reports from one city where some entrepreneurs see life after the pandemic and say, now is the time to invest. There's a new bodega in downtown Fitchburg, stocked with a colorful array of hot chocolate and chips and beans that comes special from Central America. Owner Carmen Mejia de Guzman and her husband moved to Fitchburg from Chelsea in the summer of 2019. They could afford to buy a house here, but there was a problem. Me tocaba ir hasta Chelsea a comprar I had to go to Chelsea every week to get my Salvadoran food, she says. We were good living in Fitchburg, but we missed our food. So last winter, the couple decided to open a bodega in the middle of the city, Mi Rinconcito Salvadoreño, or My Little Corner of El Salvador. They wanted to serve the local Central American population, which they say is growing and hungry for food from home. It made sense to the couple, but the world was about to change. The week they were planning to go to City Hall and get their permits to open, Fitchburg shut down because of the coronavirus. It hit us hard, Guzman says. My husband, without a job, and having invested so much in this business, we were unable to open our doors. Eventually, they were able to open in the summer, but other businesses were less fortunate. Figures from Harvard University show that by December, more than a third of small businesses that were open before the pandemic were closed. But Rinconcito Salvadoreño wasn't the only bright spot in a dismal economy. According to the Secretary of State's office, which registers new corporations and LLCs, almost 54,000 new entities were formed in Massachusetts in 2020, up almost 3,000 from the year prior. There's evidence that there's just been this explosion, really the highest level of new business registrants in the entire United States since our measures of that have been, you know, have been recorded. MIT business professor Scott Stern says it's still unclear exactly what's happening in the small business sector, but he sees a trend forming, not just in Massachusetts, but across the country, and it could point to a renaissance in startup activity. That shift towards LLCs that you identified in the Massachusetts data very much reflects choices of individuals who found themselves at a moment in life where establishing a new business, whether to pursue a passion whether or not it means reorganizing the relationship with their traditional employer or perhaps to undertake some sort of broader economic experiment that might or might not work out. That has certainly been one of the um, bright spots in um, an otherwise challenging time. 
hubieran puesto Elmer Homero y a claro. Elmer Homero. Así es. Back on Main Street in Fitchburg, Elmer Melendez is another business owner who saw opportunity in the pandemic. He says the price of real estate here was so low, he couldn't pass up the chance to buy a building. He's opening a new Mexican restaurant in the months ahead. Melendez says he's positioning himself to capitalize on the return to normalcy, which in his world means more people going out to eat. If so many restaurants closing and so many places closing, I believe we don't going to be so many places to go, but are we going to be ready for take care of patrons or, or guests that will be coming to, to the restaurants? And that is my, I really betting in that. Melendez knows there's risk implicit in opening a new business, especially during a pandemic. But he knows that also means the possibility of great rewards once COVID is in the rearview mirror. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Simone Rios. This past year of the pandemic has been really hard for most of us. But we want to know, have there been any unexpected bright spots in your life? Maybe you've taken the leap and started a new business, like the people we just heard about. Or perhaps you're like me and have enjoyed working from home with no commute. Leave us your comment at 860-275-7595. Again, 860-275-7595. You can also email us at next at ctpublic.org. One more time, that's next at ctpublic.org. And thanks. The number of fatal opioid overdose deaths in most New England states rose in 2020 compared to the previous year. New Hampshire was an outlier, with fewer of these accidental overdose deaths reported. In Vermont, by the time the final numbers are tallied, the state will likely have registered more overdose deaths than COVID-19 deaths in 2020. Independent producer Erica Heilman recently spent time with one man who says he's trying to prevent overdoses from becoming fatal. On October 15th, I lost my fiance to uh, alcoholism. Two weeks before that, my one of my good friends' daughter, 25-year-old, sat dead in the hotel room over at the Holiday Inn on Williston Road from a drug overdose, which we later determined was fentanyl. Since those two events, I've took it upon myself to learn all the junkies around the area and I have a network of people that give me a call if somebody drops or something I like I, I go administer Narcan. Since COVID Shan McGlynn has been living in one of several Vermont hotels that are now home to the homeless and to people who have lost housing because they lost their work. He says the drug problems are rampant. We talked in the parking lot out behind the Quality Inn. I'm Shan McGuinn. I'm standing here in Shelburne, Vermont at the Quality Inn. Um, I became homeless and got stuck here back in March due to COVID stuff happening and shutting down sober houses and stuff. So I've been in this situation. I became pretty acquainted with a lot of people around this area. I see a lot of pain and stuff of people losing people from uh, drug addiction and uh, alcoholism and stuff. And uh, the drug trade is out of control up here. Um, I've noticed in the last couple months 
a lot more families are coming into the motels with children. Couldn't afford their bills no more and couldn't afford to pay their mortgage and stuff. Lost their place and are in hotels. I mean, some of these people, you go from a two, three-bedroom apartment to a little hotel room and you got two kids with you, it probably gets a little mind-racking. Um, I think the stresses of that also leads to people relapsing and doing drugs. And a friend of mine that I had to go take and minister in Narcan two, two weeks ago said that's why he relapsed. He was clean 14 years. He relapsed because of the stress of this living environment. Within 24-hour period, I had to administer six Narcan's. Um, and how did you find out about them? You got phone calls? Yeah. How did you get there? I either walk or I get a ride. I usually get a phone call. I got at least three, four people in every hotel within Chittenden County and Washington County that know who I am and know if they know of a situation. Um, give me a call and I got somebody on point. If I can't be there quick enough, that'll take care of it. And so that time when you... I actually... I'm not going to say no names, but I have a friend of mine It's 85% blind, and I actually left him two Narcans, and he actually had to administer one last week. I know there's bad going around. How, how do you do it? First thing you do is you check the pulse. If it's really down real low and uh, they're starting to turn blue, you tip their head back, you get a little nostril spray. It's a little pump spray like this. You put it in and... It's like the old adrenaline drug when they used to put it in your heart. It, it brings you back. Um, it puts you into a rapid detox. Some people get pissed out of it because they just lost their killer high that they thought they had. To, they didn't realize they were about two seconds from death. So uh, administer and then stand back. Yeah. <laughs> I think that they, uh, any public place where they have people living, I think they should have access to that. I don't think it should be a 911 call when it's as simple as somebody just reaching down and spraying in the nose and bringing back somebody to life. I think it should be plenty more accessible. I think we should be able to walk in a corner store and buy it if we need to. But it's just like, it seems like it's hard to get when it's needed. Who asked you to do this? Took it upon myself. Just... Seeing all the pain and hurt of people losing people, you know. Um, I just I figure if you can do one good deed a day or one good deed a week, you're going to have karma's going to reward you. And uh, I know, like, from my fiance, when she passed, she had three kids and a mother that was still alive, so I know the pain that they're going through. I know the two months pain I've been grieving, you know. Um, I mean, people call me a soldier of the streets for the acts that I do. Um, I mean, it's not a badge I like to wear, but I'm not a soldier of nobody. You know? <laughs> I just want to make sure people are safe. That's all. For the New England News Collaborative, America Heilman. Erica Heilman produced that piece for Vermont Public Radio. She's the host and producer of the show Rumble Strip Vermont. 
We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Connecticut pushes to improve the racial diversity of its juries. And ropeless fishing. It just might be key to saving the endangered North Atlantic right whale. So how does it work? It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. In 2013, a social worker named Winston Taylor showed up for jury duty in New London, Connecticut. When the prosecutor asked about his perception of police, Taylor said he had at times been fearful of cops based on his experience as a black man. Taylor was then dismissed from the case after the state's attorney argued he showed bias against law enforcement. Years later, in 2019, Taylor said this to a Connecticut public radio reporter. He may not discriminate by the law, but he failed to understand diversity, people's experiences. And this is what I hope to bring home today, that I don't care if you're a judge, I don't care if you're a lawyer or a teacher, you cannot be afraid of our experiences. As a result of the case, the Connecticut Supreme Court announced a task force in 2019 that would address racial bias in jury selections. The task force recently gave its recommendations, and joining us to talk about it is Chief Justice Richard A. Robinson. Thanks for coming on next. Thank you for having me. So, Chief Robinson, you're the first black chief justice of the Connecticut Supreme Court, and you've spoken a lot about racial inequities in the criminal justice system. When you hear Winston Taylor talk about feeling discriminated against, what goes through your mind? Well, uh, Mr. Taylor's statements actually really highlights the problem that's going on. Mr. Taylor's experience actually isn't that much different from my own experience. I grew up on the west side of Stanford, and um, sometimes the police and the population had a difficult relationship. We understood what the police had to do, um, and sometimes I think it wasn't understood the environment that was created by that particular method of policing. Um, So when I hear Mr. Taylor say what he said, I actually wish I had a copy of that transcript and could have played it for the jury task force, because that really exemplifies the problem that's going on. And for our listeners who maybe don't understand jury selection process or have never been called to serve on a jury, explain how the process works in Connecticut, at least. Okay. Connecticut is one of the few states, if not the only state, that has what's called individual voir dire. Voir dire is French for cease speak. The attorneys actually get to talk to the individual members and ask them a bunch of questions to determine whether they have biases or whether they're a good fit for that particular jury. The process then allows the attorneys to either ask the court to remove that person as a juror or they can challenge that juror. That process has a tendency to possibly eliminate diversity on the jury pool. We all have our implicit biases, every single one of us, whether you're white, black, female, male, every human being has bias. The problem is they're implicit. We often don't know that they're there. And so you could be striking a person off of a jury because of your own biases. And that's the process we want to get around. We want to make sure that that doesn't happen anymore. Do the recommendations from the Jury Selection Task Force address this? And what stands out to you from the report? I look at the report in its entirety. I think it's a a very holistic approach to deal with the things we have to deal with. 
it's not just the biased issue, and that's why I didn't ask him just to look into bias. I asked him to look into things that were causing the jury, the jury pool that actually was called in to be less diverse than the general population. We are all entitled to a jury of our peers, and if we're not getting that, or even if there's a perception that we're not getting that, then we have a problem. People feel that they're not getting justice. The only way our legal system works is for people to truly believe in it. If you look at our cases, let's say something like 90% or more, and I do believe it's or more, people comply with the court order because they want to do that, because they believe in the system. They believe that they're going to get justice. We rarely have to use our contempt powers at all. And I think what's going on with people in government in general, we're beginning to have more problems with that. And so my particular branch of government is the judicial branch. I can do something about that. And we, the judges of the state of Connecticut, are doing something about that. Some of the recommendations include allowing non-citizens who are legal permanent residents to serve on the jury, allowing people with felony convictions to serve on the jury immediately after serving their time, paying unemployed or part-time jurors minimum wage to serve on the jury. What will that do to address the problem? It expands the pool of potential jurors. One of the things that we knew going into this whole process is that people of color weren't represented in our jury pools. We wanted a data-driven approach to deal with this. So one of the things that the task force really did was they started looking for what does the data tell us. We found in some cases that there is no data. So one of the things that they recommend is better data collection in order for us to see what's really going on out there. But as far as the data that we do have, and as far as the evidence we do have from the people who use our court systems, we knew that certain portions of the population was underrepresented. So the question then became why? And so some of the problems that came out were that some people can't afford to do jury duty, and that tends to impact people of color more. There was another one that people who have been convicted of a felony. Now, you got to remember, we always let people who are convicted of a felony sit on the jury. There was a question of how long they couldn't do it, though. So that was there was a time requirement that you had to pass a certain number of years. Yes. Right. And so the question then becomes, well, what's the reason for that seven years? What are some other examples of situations where you've seen or it's been reported that there has been racial bias in the selection process? Well, let me give you an example of something that happened when I was a a trial judge. I was sitting in New Britain and they were doing individual voir dire and the two attorneys came to me and they said, "Uh, Judge, we've decided that neither one of us wants this person to sit on the jury, but there's a problem that we think you need to address. They then explained to me that the potential juror was a black woman who didn't believe that black people can get a fair shake in the system because there were no blacks in the system except for as defendants in criminal trials. They, of course, knew that I I was a black judge and um, that that alone could probably give her some comfort in our system. And I was so proud of the attorneys for being able to think about this and come to me and say, would I get involved? I think this is actually an example of why diversity on the bench is also important. So I put on my robe and I got out on the bench and the woman was still there. And I said, "Um, hi, I'm uh, Judge Richard Robinson. I'm the presiding judge of civil. And she's basically asked me, what does that mean? I said, I'm actually in charge of all the civil cases. I assign the judges. I look at the docket. I'm the manager of the civil system here in New Britain. 
and you should have seen the look on her face. It went from a sort of a, I don't want to be here. This is not the place for me to, wow, I can't believe this. And so I explained to her that uh, the judicial branch had become more diverse than it ever had before. And that actually brings confidence to the people who come before our courts. It gives confidence to the the jurors who come in our buildings. It gives confidence to the defendants whose uh, lives and limb are at stake. We have to be better at understanding that the judicial branch needs to be really inclusive, not just for the sake of appearance. It has to be for the sake of actual justice being done and access to justice. You got to remember, the judicial branch is just a microcosm of our world. And I want it to look more like the world on the outside, because I think that will bring the kind of confidence we need in our judicial system. Richard A. Robinson is the Chief Justice of the Connecticut Supreme Court. Chief Robinson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Chief Justice Robinson says he anticipates implementing many of the task force's recommendations. Starting this month, Massachusetts lobstermen are banned from fishing most state waters until late spring. This is an effort to protect critically endangered North Atlantic right whales. But there could soon be a special exception for lobstermen experimenting with a new kind of gear technology. It's called ropeless fishing, and CAI's Eve Zukov stepped aboard to see how it works. 56-year-old Rob Martin has been fishing from the Sandwich Marina for the last 29 years off his boat, the Resolve. It's only 40 feet. It was big when I first got it, but now it seems small. Over the last few decades, he's watched the lobster industry change and regulations increase. He already can't fish for three months of the year out of Sandwich while the whales are here. My closure is Mass Bay. It's a 3,000-square nautical mile closure, which encompasses all of Cape Cod Bay. It's closed because lobster lines that run from buoys on the surface down to the ocean floor pose a danger to North Atlantic right whales. According to federal regulators, about 98 percent of vertical lines along the U.S. Atlantic coast come from lobstermen's gear. And entanglement in lines accounts for roughly half of all right whale deaths. But under a special state permit, Martin is working with scientists and engineers to test ropeless fishing gear, which means on this cold January morning, Rob Martin is on the leading edge of an effort to save lobster fishing and right whales. We're just about there. We're about 20 minutes into Cape Cod Bay on our way to pick up this experimental gear. Normally, when a lobsterman checks his traps, he looks for buoys on the water's surface. But with ropeless technology, buoys and vertical lines are gone. So lobstermen cruise to the general area where the traps were dropped and send an acoustic signal down to the gear on the ocean floor. So everything's ready to go. Martin reaches for a pair of waterproof overalls and with his other hand grabs his phone. He's not making a call. He's opening an app that will send the acoustic signal to the lobster traps. And I'm hitting release command. Release. Someday, when other fishermen use ropeless gear, the app will also show Martin where other traps are set, which will help avoid gear competition. That's going to beep in a second. It's going to tell me how far away the unit is. Okay, 79 meters away. Okay, it's releasing. Success, okay. 
We're in a countdown now. Somewhere under the water, a remotely triggered air tank is inflating a bag that should shoot up to the surface. 63 meters away. Now we're looking out across the water. We're waiting for, well, we're waiting for something to appear. And then... Oh, there it is. A long inflatable bag pops up out of the water, sticking into the air. It's traffic cone orange, so you can't miss it. In some ways, it looks like one of those blow-up tubes that bobs around outside a car dealership. And now, for the first time, there's a vertical line in the water. A rope runs down from the inflatable bag to Martin's traps. He leans over the side of the boat and lifts the bag out of the water, putting it on the rail. He squeezes the air out with his forearms. And this is how you deflate the bag. We just fold it. And this right here. Now he can use a pulley to haul the end trap into the boat. Once that's up, Martin packs the orange bag and a little foam float that came up with it back into the trap like a parachute. Then he checks the air in the inflation tanks. He says he'll be able to fish for more than a month before he has to refill them. So now we're ready to start hauling the whole From here, it's just like regular lobster fishing. Martin hauls up 10 traps, all connected by a rope. Out of most come big blue-green lobsters with rust-colored claws. That's a female with eggs. Has to get thrown back. In just minutes, he's banded the claws of a dozen lobsters and got his traps flying off the stern, where they drop back down into the water. All clear. To be checked another day. So all this experimental gear works. But when it comes to ropeless technology, one lobsterman's success isn't enough for an industry-wide conversion. Questions remain over the cost, reliability, and safety. And the answers will determine whether ropeless fishing will save the whales and lobstering for fishermen like Rob Martin. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Eve Zukoff. That was part one of a two-part series on the potential for ropeless fishing to transform New England's lobster fishery. Next week, we'll hear why experts say a changeover to ropeless gear could still be years away. Coming up, why the pandemic drove a local comedian to create an unusual fictional crime thriller. And a group of New Englanders inspired by inauguration poet Amanda Gorman. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay, we're back. And I want you to hear something. I'm not going to give it much preamble, except to say that this is the beginning of a fictional crime thriller. But don't worry, nothing super scary will happen in this clip. And the voice you're about to hear is Rhode Islander Lydia Keating. When I was younger, my family spent the summers in a small fishing town in Maine, Rockport, Maine. And I had this friend, Claire, who lived there all year round. She was my best friend in Rockport. And Claire was cool, but her older sister was even cooler. Her older sister was this girl, or I guess she was more of a woman because she was like 12 years older than us, named Francesca. But everyone called her Fran. And Fran was the captain of this fishing boat. She ran a super successful fishing business in town. She had all these big men working under her and she would boss them all around. But everyone really respected her. She was a lot older though, so we weren't friends. 
friends, but I would see her whenever I was hanging out with Claire. So one day I was chilling at Claire's house. It was like 11 in the morning and Fran came home from a morning of fishing. And normally she's really energetic and welcoming and friendly, but that morning she seemed kind of off. She looked really pale and seemed really anxious. We were like, what's wrong? But she told us that nothing was wrong and she went right to the kitchen to talk to her mom. That's the beginning of Fran, the story of a fisherwoman who discovers her business is being used to traffic fentanyl. And though you can't see it, it's actually a video of Lydia Keating telling the story. After Lydia posted parts one and two of Fran on TikTok, it took off with over a million views in 24 hours. Joining us to talk about this project is Lydia Keating. Thanks for coming on next. Thank you for having me. Fran is kind of unusual because of its format. You're telling the story in lots of heavily edited videos while you, at least in the beginning, are applying makeup. And I'm wondering if you could just tell our listeners how Fran came about in the first place. Yeah, definitely. So before COVID hit, I was living in LA and pursuing TV writing. I'm still kind of pursuing that path, but now I have kind of a couple of different avenues that I'm going down. But I, at the time, was writing a lot of pilots and the idea for Fran came a year ago and I started the pilot and I really liked the world and I really liked the character of Fran. It's, but then I kind of abandoned the pilot altogether. Then when COVID hit and I started experimenting with digital media and digital forms of storytelling, I realized I was kind of sitting on this fictional story that could work really well with the medium I was already playing in. So that's when I decided to do Fran as in the form that you've seen it, which is me just orating the story while at first applying makeup, but then eventually it's just literally me just orating what happens. Now you say that this is fictional and I have to ask, is it 100% fictional? I mean, you grew up in Rhode Island as we've talked about. Have you ever been to Rockport, Maine? Did you spend time there? No, so I've never been to Rockport, Maine. I'm pretty um, protective of my ho- of hometown just because I think it is just such a special part of the world. It's my favorite place in the world. So immediately I just felt like I didn't want to use the name of my town, Little Compton. I just like felt like I wanted to keep the actual town that I was really describing. Rockport was really just a filler for the town that I was describing was fully Little Compton. You know, if somebody came up to me and kind of pitched this concept and said, okay, I'm going to post this video of me telling the story, and you're just going to be looking at me telling the story, I think I honestly might have been skeptical, but there's no reason to be because it totally works and it totally draws you in. And I'm wondering if it took courage for you to put it out there or if this is just like a natural, normal thing for you. I think generally having an online presence, or at least attempting to even have an online presence and create digital content does require a kind of a shedding of the ego and being willing to look foolish and being willing, honestly, to make bad art. I was talking about this with a friend the other day, but I think sometimes we can be so precious with like the art we're making that like we end up not making anything at all. And I think if I had really sat down and thought about like whether Fran would work or not before I made it, I would have been skeptical myself and I could have definitely talked myself out of it and thinking like this concept doesn't work. It's like there's not enough going on. It's too boring. But I didn't. I kind of just went for it. And maybe that was a product of just not having a lot else to do. But I guess anytime I put stuff on the internet, it's scary, although it's less and less scary as I do it more and more. At the end of Fran, the long-form narrative video, the TV show, pilot, you say this. 
if you liked this story and want to see more, maybe want to see it get made, then I don't know, share this with your friends if you think they'd be into it, if they like murder suspense stories. And maybe if you guys just share it enough, someone from Netflix or HBO will see it and they'll like it and they'll want more. HBO would be cool because we need a sex scene. We need straight nudity. I want to see Bear Bod. <laughs> oh my god i like forget that i say things sometimes <laughs> is it oh weird gosh. to hear yourself say it oh yeah well yeah so since you put that out have you gotten any word from hbo or netflix no i haven't i mean that would be amazing but i did have a friend who's a producer reach out and he wants to we're actually working right now on further developing fran but it does take a bit of time <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't want to give anything away about what happens at the end of the pilot. It is a total cliffhanger. It's definitely not resolved. And when it ended, I just felt like, no, come on, keep making more. So what do you think? Will you make more before whatever happens in terms of TV? You know, I want to. I think there could be something that like a mix of maybe having YouTube still be part of it and future releases of episodes. But I think I still need to really like know exactly what happens all the way until the end before I start releasing any future episodes of Fran, whether that be in the written word or digital or, you know, maybe a podcast. Yeah, well, I will be ready to watch. I personally think the current form it's in is awesome and totally oh, entertaining. Lydia Keating is the creator of Fran, a long-form fiction crime thriller video story. Keating is a writer, performer, and digital creator. She's also a Rhode Island native. Lydia, it's been great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, you guys. For many who listened to or watched Joe Biden's presidential inauguration, 22-year-old Amanda Gorman struck a chord with her inaugural poem, The Hill We Climb. After the pomp and circumstance of the day, WBUR's Chris Laguerra listened in as a group of young writers analyzed the poem. When day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? There's something about poetry that captures in verse what often can't be said. The loss we carry, a sea we must wade. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace. This poem, read by Amanda Gorman, the nation's first ever youth poet laureate, spoke to something deep inside us after a year of racial reckoning and loss. It answered a question for high schooler Zariah Eisner, how we aren't broken, but a work in progress. She's a participant at 826 Boston, a nonprofit youth writing and publishing organization. She sees a chance for things to change, like for us to be able to, I guess, finish it in a way and make it better. And like, I just re really respected that line. There's something sobering about the fact that a few weeks before, Confederate flags waved inside the Capitol during an insurrection, a moment that pushed Gorman to change her poem and speak on those same steps about the legacy of her ancestors. We, the successors of a country and a time where a skinny black girl descended from slaves and raised by a single mother, can dream of becoming president, only to find herself reciting for one. The teens praise Gorman's alliteration, 
Oriana Dunker, another member of the group, found it beautiful how Gorman tied this country's past to its future. Society in general does not really accept, or even within my like own community, we don't want us as Black people to associate ourselves with slavery and our mm-hmm. ancestors were enslaved. But I feel like a key part of her whole poem was that element of just acknowledging our history. Because, you know, that's true. Everything she said was true. We are descendants from people who were enslaved in our nation. And we can't just forget about that because that's not how we move forward towards justice. The goal of this session is to produce works, poems, to inspire creativity to see Gorman before the nation doing what they themselves would like to do, to build up others with their words. Blessa Dedeji said as she reflected on the poem and the country, it brought to mind an ocean. We're all living in America, but I feel like we all experience different sides. Like my experience is not going to be the same experience as someone who might be more privileged or less privileged or on the poverty spectrum. I do have this idea that like, an ocean can both drown you and carry you, so I kind of compared America to an ocean. These young writers will also have a chance to influence the world with their words, with a book expected to come out in April. Gorman wrote the foreword. Let the globe, if nothing else, say this is true. That even as we grieved, we grew. That even as we hurt, we hoped. That even as we tired, we tried. That we'll forever be tied together, victorious. Not because we will never again know defeat, but because we will never again sow division. At the start of a fledgling year, to see someone so young on a national stage move them, to see her reflecting on past pain while using her talent to create something beautiful. That was WBUR's Krista Laguerra. And that's our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer, and Lily Tyson. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. The music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. If you want to know who you heard today, visit our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and the Public's Radio. 